Hi, I'm Kira Brie-Kurek. I'm Nicole Breeden. And you're listening to ProPrac, a podcast where we explore the professional practice of artists and hear their stories. Hello and thanks for joining us today on ProPrac. Today our guest is Linda Roberts. Based in Melbourne, Linda Roberts is an interdisciplinary practitioner operating at the intersection of art, design and organisational systems. Motivated by the creative potential of public space and the critical role artists play in the built environment, she's currently a PhD candidate at Deakin University, researching how we make art public. Linda is co-director of Public Assembly with Carrie Hahn, a creative studio exploring the social dynamics of public space. Their work has taken form as participatory workshops, tactical encounters and immersive installations, often working with and within civic systems. Between 2014 and 2017, Linda was Senior Public Art Program Manager at the City of Melbourne. In this role, she developed Melbourne's public art framework and a suite of new projects, including test sites and the Biennial Lab. Thanks for joining us in studio today, Linda. Thanks for asking me to come along. Oh, so exciting to have you here. When we were thinking up this podcast, um, you were definitely someone that we thought of immediately as someone we wanted to talk to. So thank you. So, Linda, um, can you tell us a little bit about how you got to where you are today? My journey into the arts has been long um, and definitely there have been many um, different parts I've taken uh, exploring um, creative practice. I says what's been... I says underscoring everything about my practice has been that I actually have a creative practice, mm. number one. But where that sits, um, whether it's in design or the arts... Um, is something I'm still I'm still working it out, and I suppose that's the thing. It's not um, it's not linear in any way, shape, or form. Yeah. Do you um, position it in a way that it can coexist in the both in both realms simultaneously as well, or um, do you find yourself bouncing from one to the other? If I think back from when I finished high school, uh, I think it's more that I was in one field, mm. and then there was a definite point in which I knew. I needed to make a really strong and very courageous decision and take a risk if I was going to move into the arts. Um, And that meant not getting work. It meant going on the NICE scheme. Mm -hmm. It meant I had to make a really clean line. Mm -hmm. Um, Otherwise, I was always going to be stuck in design. Um, And that was a really critical point um, in my life. Yeah. So after um, school, did you, you went on to study design? Yeah, so interestingly enough, I'm thinking back about, you know, when you're in high school and you're you're studying. I, was, I grew up in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, a, I'm a kid from the western suburbs and uh, I really like science and art but my parents were very conservative about pursuing the arts. So I'm on a whim right before I had to put in my preferences for university. I made a decision to apply for architecture. I really had no idea what architecture <laughs> was about. Where I really wanted to do was go to Sydney College of the Arts. Yeah, right. Mm. Um, and mum and I had gone and had a look mm-hmm. at Sydney College of the Arts and mum was freaking out at the time. It was down in a warehouse yeah. um, in Roselle Um and she was not happy about it. Oh my god! What did you see there? Was there anything that was it's just like giant warehouses? Just like, you know? Oh my god! Artists. It was just yeah. brutal 
space yeah. and I, I, I realise now I grew up in a very protective mm-hmm. um, environment where actually I was kind of on a very tight leash in terms of engaging with public realm and mm-hmm. I think it's quite interesting now that public realm is the thing that I mm. find um, most interesting because mm-hmm. it's the thing that as I grew up I wasn't kind of, it wasn't the space that I was able to operate in as a young person or let out into. Right. So so I studied architecture and I think what's interesting about that idea of slipping between disciplines is that architecture and design completely informed my practice now mm. in ways that are subtle. Um, it's the way that I work, you know, whether it's working in situ, you know, um, I when I studied architecture I had to do a 12-hour watch and observe the opera house for 12 hours and this was like week two of my architecture course. Wow, that's brutal. Yeah, it's brutal but it's also fascinating because you see public realm and public space and you see a building operating um, in these kinds of arcs of time. Mm. Kind of of deep reading of a space Mm -hmm. um, and how important that's become in all of my work. Uh, things like the city as a laboratory or a space in which you, experimentation can occur um, and other things in terms of my architecture influencing me have been at one point Chris Johnson, who was the government architect at the time, spoke to all of us baby architects and he talked about the power of the brief and the client and you're only as good as the brief that you're given and that was so instrumental for me to think about that actually no matter how creative you are, how no matter how good you are as a creative designer, unless you're working with incredible briefs and the person's asking you the right question, mm. you'll only be as good um, as the question that you've been asked. And mm-hmm. I've realised that asking the question is the creative act. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Mm. in lots of ways thinking about the arts as a space which puts back those questions and how the power of that, that's kind of where... It was shifting. It was a really key point um, in my studies to think about, well, you know, it's like a che- architects are really on a chessboard and there's someone else moving the pieces. Mm. So how do you then influence up the line to mm. the power structures mm. that, mm-hmm. that influence and put money and influence our public realm? Yeah. So upon graduating from architecture, did you then go on to work in architecture for a period of time? So architecture has two degrees. And I finished my first degree at Sydney Uni and I was really lucky when my lecturers um, recommended that I work. At Sydney Uni you have a year out. So that's kind of like year out, you go out into the field, you learn stuff. Okay. So that was a great opportunity. I got to learn, got to work with Virginia Kerridge. She was a young architect. She was about 15 years older than me. She was just starting to emerge as a leading light in Sydney architecture scene. Mm-hmm. It was her and me and her husband at that time, Phil Wallace, and Virginia got her first architecture award. And I thought I was living the dream. Mm. And I basically didn't go back to uni. So I worked <laughs> for her for seven years um, in developing, designing houses, um, some retail spaces and the like. Mm-hmm. Um Generally, it was private spaces, private clients, and that's when I really started to see that we were making these exquisite spaces, mm-hmm. but actually only for elite kind of wealthy people. And yeah. were these like domestic environments as well? Absolutely, exquisitely beautiful. And in terms of artistic integrity, Virginia was a leading light in terms of poetics, use of materials. I mean, she was 
you know, it's an incredible opportunity at such an emerging practitioner to work for a f- leading, you know, leading female architect at the time. Mm. And I suppose I lived vicariously through her and I thought, wow, this was this is my future. This is what I'm aspiring to. And at some point I realised that I wasn't interested in working in private sector in the sense of working on private houses and this thing mm-hmm. about what Chris Johnson had said about developing the brief mm-hmm. became back to me about, well, actually I'm more interested in public realm. I'm really interested in thinking about how you ask the right questions. Um, so Virginia... Um, I burnt out at seven, after about seven years. Um, Virginia and I were one of a group of maybe five or six architects who were developing prototype housing for the Olympic Village in Sydney oh, at the wow. time. And where everyone else had an office and we were working on drawing boards, so hand-drawn mm, drawings, yeah. everyone else was on CAD, we would toddle up um, to Mervac and we wouldn't have had much sleep. <laughs> and... Um, I burnt myself out and ended up with chronic fatigue. Wow. Mm -hmm. Also, what was really interesting about that time working for Virginia was I was a contractor and I wasn't actually earning heaps of cash. So it was very stressful. I'd just moved out of home at the time, living in Surrey Hills, trying to make ends meet, trying to reconcile life, like life outside of home and Mm. working for, you know, an architect and doing a really stressful job. And I was a workaholic. So I would work until 10pm at night. And I just burnt myself out. So at that point I went to my mum said, why don't you move to Byron Bay and take a break? And that's what I did for two years. Such good so advice. Classic advice. <laughs> and that changed everything. Yeah. It's so interesting. Health, uh, this moment in your life which you see is like, oh, my God, it's the end of the world, actually ends up being such an important moment mm. where you rethink <clears throat> your practice. and If you choose to take that time to stop or to pivot or if you get forced to yeah Yeah. I think it was forced to Mm. yeah you know Mm. with chronic fatigue comes depression yeah you know all you do is fall asleep and you actually retreat from the world did you think that there was maybe signs leading up to that moment that you kind of like suppressed or pushed away um or was it kind of a you know big explosion in your face and you didn't see it coming in terms of um how you had been treating your mind and your body um, and your practice as well. Yeah, as a workaholic, Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, I should have seen those telltale and I was stressed about not having lots of money to live off. So, mm-hmm. you know, my mm-hmm. folks, mm-hmm. you know, couldn't financially help me out. I mean, you know, they shouldn't need to. But what I found really interesting was there's an illusion that architecture is well paid and yeah. it is if it's in corporate sector but if you're working for really small practices they're struggling to make ends meet so it's this, it's just like an arts practice you want to work for a practice that has integrity that spends time designing really amazing things then actually you're going to be compromised by how much you earn so it was what I realized was well actually you could be doing any creative practice and you'd be earning about the same so it was kind of those things all coming together mm. And also often when you are so fresh out of, um, in whatever sector, um, maybe not if you have actually studied business, but you don't know or you might not understand how to manage your small amount of finances that you are coming in. So um, you are not only working with such a small amount of money, but you also um, might not have be informed on the best way to use it as well or Mm. it's Mm. actually stretched so thin that Mm. you can't um, create a safety net for yourself or start, you know, investing in your health or, you know, getting Mm -hmm. to go to the dentist or Mm. things like that is something that, you know, gets completely put aside when you 
uh, on such a small amount of income. Um, so it, those things kind of build up over time as well. Mm-hmm. I think mm. we don't acknowledge this when we go through into education. This is a fundamental well-being how we look after our bodies, it's actually in our minds. Mm. You know, how do we cook food if we've got limited budget? How do we ensure that we do cost-effective exercise? Um, mm-hmm. How do we ensure we know when to take a break? Mm-hmm. Yeah, These mm-hmm. tools are not given to us, and particularly in architecture, it is notoriously bad mm. for having crazy deadlines. You're, it's a badge of honour to do 24 hours, you know, do all-nighters. It's actually that's part of the culture, you know. It's the attitude. And I... It's, I still struggle to shake it off yeah and I think also just um generally in our kind of culture of um what a break looks like often people think it's a holiday and that costs money or um that you kind of even now in terms of um wellness it's often this kind of like treat yourself wellness that also involves oh, yeah, like a retreat or something yeah like that. rather yeah. than actually what does it mean maybe it means making sure that your phone is in another room at six o'clock at night and so you you can actually take time to switch off and that is taking time out or um does it mean getting up an hour earlier so you can go for a walk outside um those kind of practices that are actually mm. free mm-hmm. um but often we don't even we're not even told them because we're marketed just kind of these packages mm-hmm. and things, more things to consume, basically. Well, you know, like thrashing yourself with booze, mm. you know, to wind yeah. down, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. Self-medication. Like, yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. How many times? It's been very interesting. Recent jobs that I've undertaken that that has come back into the play because mm-hmm. it's the culture, the mm-hmm. culture mm-hmm. In certain organisations, are you work hard, you play hard. Mm-hmm. Um, that happened in a couple of um, work contexts, mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. it's really hard to manage that when mm-hmm. your work culture supports that kind of, you know, having drinks Lifestyle. after work. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so, from from Byron, um, how how did you kind of move forward from that sort of like period of, um, you know, uh, like rehabilitation or you know for you like how did you sort of come back from that yeah I was really lucky uh I I found yoga mm-hmm. mm. at that time you know I was in my mid just maybe 26 or so so I found yoga and martial arts and also acupuncture uh and also pull the pin in architecture in terms of this idealist romanticized perfectionist goal mm. Mm-hmm. that I had always dreamed of and I think that's this, this idea of the heroic, singular creative fighting for their, you know, mode of expression. Um, and that was big mm. that to recognise that. Um, we got counselling to talk about that. So it's really mm-hmm. interesting how much work I had to do but at the same time I was very lucky. I got a, a, a very small part-time gig working back in an architecture office but it was very different. You know, pimping ourselves out to, to developers at the time was very interesting, doing high-rise buildings in Ballina. And for the first mm. time ever I was working for an, you know, an architect <laughs> I didn't kind of believe in, frankly, yeah. mm-hmm. but learnt a lot about, okay, what about having a practice that then supports another practice on the mm, outside mm-hmm. and that was a big um, kind of shift for me. Mm-hmm. So after two years, um, acupuncture, martial arts, yoga, I also at that time moved into and this is where chance, you know, it's so interesting how chance encounters occur. I moved into this great house that happened to be a rock and roll festival 
creative mm, house in Byron. Right. And through that I just made this new set of connections um, and that also kind of brought, I suppose, opened up what potentially my creative practice could be. Yeah. And it was, I moved back to Sydney after one of my tutors from Sydney Uni, so many years before, had said, I'm working at University of Western Sydney, I've got a great um, associate lectureship gig opening up, would you like to apply? Um, It was looking at display and event design. I said, oh, yep, throw my hat in the ring. And so I moved back to Sydney and started teaching at University of Western Sydney. Um, And... That was a part-time gig and then I started having a creative practice that started to bubble along the sides and that's when I started to look at things like radio as a platform and I, you know, volunteered for my local radio station which was Bondi FM (laughs) and I did a radio show about the arts. So I started to think about where where were my areas of interest and Uh it was like, yeah, the arts is definitely where I want to go. I'm really interested in how artists practice. So created an art show, um... And it was really doing the teaching and the radio show that I started to think about, okay, what's next for me? The teaching at Western Sydney, it was interesting because I didn't have my second degree in architecture. I was kind of my, the head of school was like, you need to get your second degree. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time where I was like, okay, I better get my act together and go back into architecture. And I did. I went and enrolled at UTS and I did the first, maybe it's only a two-year degree and I did 18 months. And at some point I just went, I do not want to practice architecture. Mm. And again, that was a pivot point where I just went, this isn't for me. I suppose what I've realised, I do a lot of work it out, try it and then Mm. walk away. And that's sometimes really hard. A lot of times people will stay at something and I... Challenging um, that um, sunk cost fallacy, I think, you know, with the, you know, you just, you've you've already invested so much in in pursuing a certain kind of thing, you know, sometimes it's it's more effective to walk away, but we feel like we need to keep investing in it because we've already, you know, invested so much, but... Mm. mm, Yeah. mm. And at that point, I then started to think about my teaching at Western Sydney and thought, I've never earned enough money to even go overseas. So I then pinned myself out to the highest bidder and I went corporate. Ah. Wow. <laughs> I, I would never have done this. I would never have done this unless I'd had chronic fatigue and I'd worked for this architect in Byron Bay where I went, okay, what if you have a practice that's actually really f- pays you well? Yeah. And then you have a creative practice on the side. And this is an idea of called the barbell. I think it's called, what's it called? It's a barbell strategy mm. where you have one thing that enables you to kind of live and then you have another thing that actually enables you to practice. Mm. So basically I delaminated my practice between these two things but at the same time the corporate sector, it was so interesting and it was so intense and I had such incredible female bosses at the time. I had two that really believed in me that, um, you know, I would do things like I would run away from the office and get back in my car and try and leave and they would call me and say it's okay we will work this out like I just had the best I just had the most amazing women who would help me um but through that I had gone from you wouldn't hear a mouth like I was so quiet and kind of shy Mm -hmm. through the corporate doing this corporate work I found my voice and then through doing the radio as well so it was these kinds of two things where it took me a long time to find my voice mm. and I would say it was at that point that I started to realise that, you know, 
I wanted to I had things I wanted to say or to open up and really have conversations with other people mm. about. And mm. often it is through those experiences that are, um, you know, where you challenge yourself to have to be in a place that might be uncomfortable or share different values to you, then you can really start to articulate what your values are um, through that process of comparison. Mm. Yeah, if you're not the kind of person maybe, you know, speaking from personal experience, if you're not the kind of person who is just like, you know, really putting yourself out there all the time, it, it can be, you know, really help. I mean, for me, it was really helpful to start a kind of radio, you know, like I'm doing a little bit of radio and it's like it's good to just actually, for me, it's good to, to actually force myself like it's it's really challenging. It's really hard, but it's like yeah, like yeah, like trying to break through. Then it's like oh, it is there. It's just like you know, getting it out, having that you know. It's um, so spot on, um, Nicole, because because I was so shy. Radio for me was really pushing me mm. into my discomfort zone, mm. and, and I realized you know, I, and frankly, you know, from uh, Bondi FM, I then went to FBI Radio. And I, it was kind of a lovely, delightful experience at FBI because it combined my design work. I designed the studios at the time when they set up. But then I also got an opportunity to work and be a producer on Sunday Night at the Movies, which was this really great experimental one hour of audio kind of experimentation. Yeah. And I was so lucky I was given that because it was at that, that point that I started to see sound as an art form. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was experimenting with sound walks back in the city and using rebroadcasting of those sound recordings back into the radio broadcast and it was at that point that I started to see that sound was this ultimate architecture, it was ephemeral, it was the ultimate form of architecture in a way, um, space in terms of time and space, mm-hmm. it was immersive, mm. um, it kind of did everything that architecture um, could be but it did it in a, such a fluid and dynamic way and it meant that you could control a process and you didn't have a client pulling the strings in terms of what you could and couldn't do. Mm. Mm. Um, but, yeah, I think radio is a really important point. So through this process of um, learning that sound could um, create these spaces and um, did you decide to then move it into kind of what would be seen as an arts practice or were you kind of um, still directing it into an architecture um, scene? What was your kind of process in navigating that or did you I even identify with it as an arts practice? Mm. I was certainly thinking it was starting to be a practice and I thought the thing is that the time it was not it was different to design mm. so it was something else but at the time I don't know if I would I wouldn't have been very, very reluctant at that point to call myself an artist yeah um because it was all volunteer based projects you know um in some ways I could have been seen as a dilettante mm. mm-hmm. at, at that point in time and 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 possibly and no doubt I would be still viewed that now. Yeah, right. In terms of my practice, and I still think my practice now is potentially still emerging. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Mm. So because there's always been this dynamic of working and enabling and doing other things while having a practice at the same time. So that's just the way my practice has evolved. Mm. But sound, it's interesting, radio and sound, there's another avenue that came from this. So through my old housemates at Byron Bay and the radio connection, Mm. one of the people that I'd met at that time was putting on a big rock and roll festival on Cockatoo Island. It was the first time the island had ever been opened up to the general public. Ticket sales were going well. He called me up and said, hey, do you want to do arts and decor? (laughs) 
for the festival? <laughs> I said, sure. We had about three months. Uh, I ended up calling up UTS and getting some interior design students to work with mm. me. And I also worked with um, my flatmate at the time who was also um, doing her master's um, or was doing her master's at COFA. Uh, she curated, her name is Carly Leinbach, she and I worked on curating a series of site-responsive spaces. And it was at that point that I started to see a connection point between radio and sound installations, site-responsive works mm-hmm. and festivals. Mm. And it was like penny drop. And I then moved to Melbourne to do my master's myself at, in, at RMIT in art and public space. Mm. And that was the point where I went, actually, I need to bring all this together. I actually need to stop. I had like a mixed economy of doing like four or five things. I was also making jewellery at the time. You know, I had my radio show, I was, you know, doing a few little exhibitions as part of that mm-hmm. radio show. I was like, hang on, moved to Melbourne. At the time, the Melbourne laneways were really big. Yes. It's obvious mm-hmm. Melbourne knows what they're doing. I'm coming to this city <laughs> to try and work it out. I mean, I intended to go back to Sydney. So mm-hmm. yeah, I didn't intend to still be here. Mm. Yeah. It's so interesting how um, when you kind of look back and are reflective on your kind of process of making and how a share house can be as formative as the years studying at the university and those connections and fostering those connections and seeing the value in other people's practices Mm -hmm. that sit outside of yours, how much you might end up using their, um, their knowledge or their influence or um, collaborating with them in the future and um, it always kind of, you know, shocks me how much I kind of think about these people that are in my lives that or other people's lives that are, um, are such huge influences outside of just the structures of a formal education. Mm. It reminds me of something that Patricia Piccanini said um, at the NAVA Future Forward conference that was in Canberra in 2018. And she talked about her experience of working or establishing uh, an ARI in Melbourne and she talked about the idea that you don't join a community, a creative community, you build one Mm. and you don't just go in and say I've claimed this space. Mm. You, This is a long game Mm -hmm. and these connections you make and you just don't know which ones or what things are going to shape your future practice. Mm. And it is very interesting to think about being aware of opportunism but also not being led by it. No. So that's that really interesting mm-hmm. thing to go, actually, then when do you start to build a structure around it by going, actually, I need to get a pure line of vision so when opportunities come, yeah. I then know which things are actually aligned with my practice and what chart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that has taken me years to work mm. it out. And they yes, do go so organically. No. But also I think maybe maybe when I was younger I might have been a little bit judgmental or quicker to put those boundaries around myself being like you are of you know um you are of the same kind of industry as me therefore I kind of think of you in one way and you are a friend but work in a different industry and so I think of you or like associate in my brain of you in a different kind of spot in my life Mm -hmm. when actually those people have been as vital to my career and making um parts of my work even be alive you know, so, you know, the the friend that I went to high school with who has gone on to help Jess Johnson at NGV, those kinds of how do those people, you know, um, and, you know, as a teenager, you don't understand that those relationships are really important. And 
I'm so grateful for those people in my life and I, I wish I kind of could tell myself as a younger person, like, don't put perimeters around what you think is a professional relationship and what you think is mm. a personal relationship mm-hmm. because your practice often relies on so many people. Yeah, too. I totally wish someone had told me that networking is just about making friends with people. It's not, you know, it's not this uh, secret other thing it's just it's just friendships just fr- friendships that become you know professional relationships and that's and that's kind of you know all it is mm. it's not this other weird or vice versa because it's sometimes the methodologies and the approaches of those of those parallel areas or, or completely different ones where true inspiration comes from I had a friend who worked in the film industry and her experiences of working on site in cities was a really interesting um was one of a number of things that influenced um, the development of test sites Mm. and talking to her about her experience of being working with site managers and how you get access to a city to make a film was kind of so interesting I had only just penny drop was like oh I know someone who works in the film industry and then finding those kinds of contacts you've already got opens up um other lines of inquiry for practice. Mm. Absolutely. So once you kind of came to Melbourne and started amassing all of your avenues of knowledge and skills and how did that end up kind of manifesting into what your practice is today? Mm. Because, I mean, there's been so many avenues since then as well. So maybe we work now and work Mm. backwards. Mm. Right. So, well, right now, right now I'm operating out of a converted Bedford ice cream van. It's called the public field office at the moment, but otherwise known as, lovingly known as Daisy, the <laughs> ice cream van. Uh, and I'm currently doing my PhD, looking at public art and the process behind public art, which is drawing on my experience of working at City of Melbourne mm-hmm. as um, first the public art program manager, then senior public art program manager for about almost four years. Um, and with the PhD, it's been really interesting. A lot of this is about drawing on the experience that I had from working inside um, a bureaucracy and a space that enables significant public art commissionings and, and really opens up the city for artists to operate in and was in one way really drawing on my architectural experience. I mean, it's talking about space mm-hmm. but it's also understanding the regulations and architects are very good at being able to navigate those parameters. Um, so I was drawing a lot on that experience and also working with architects at City of Melbourne, so reaching out and starting to open up the program to start to connect more broadly with other areas. But at the same time, you know, still having a practice. So I have a practice called Public Assembly, which is, as you mentioned, it's with Kerry Han. Um, and I met Kerry when I first met, moved to Melbourne within a few months. He was um, working at RMIT um, and we, um, you know, connected and started, you know, we have a personal relationship. Um, but then after about a year or so, I, I actually changed um, courses. So I started at Art and Public Space. Oh. I, the intensive was amazing. I did six months of a grad search and then I flipped back into, ironically, back into architecture yeah, and did... Um, a master's in architecture but in expanded field and it was like oh my god someone who understands a misfit like me who actually understands you can have an arts practice that's actually has a cue back to expanded practices in architecture Mm -hmm. so through that having the public assembly and then working at city of melbourne 
it was interesting because I, you know, for f- that period of time that uh, that I was there, um, I had started to establish a practice called cool Public Assembly, and it was at that point that I stopped doing design work. You know, before I started City Melbourne, maybe for three or four years, and I had, I think I could pretty much say there was a practice ah. that was established through doing the masters. That mine through the supervision of yet another really amazing female practitioner and um, mentor of mine, Sand Helsall, where she came to me, stop, you know, you do a lot of enabling in these art festivals, uh, rock festivals. What about if you did work? And it was like, wow, okay, that's a real shift. I'll try that. And through that process, it was still a sound-based work, but through that I started to realise, yeah, there's an interesting thing here about engaging with the public or not so much engaging with the public, but how do you mesh people into projects? And I became really interested in participatory work um, at that point in time and site-specific work. With this project and this practice, um, does public assembly encapsulate that whole practice or is it a fragment of your um, your practice? Yeah, I think public assembly, I think of it as like a research laboratory. Uh-huh. It's a test space. There have been times when public assembly have had to pause in some aspects when I then took on being, a, you know, I hate to say bureaucrat, but at City mm. of Melbourne and being a, at the public art program manager, um, I think I've probably got two practices. So public assembly is one. It's a collaboration. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of why I say I'm emerging still in my mind because I feel like a significant art part of my practice in the public realm has been with somebody else. And while I have very clear ideas about where that practice sits and very specific um, ways of practice, I haven't done a lot of practice on my or projects on my own. So I would say there's public assembly and then there's an enabling practice that either is working at City Melbourne as a public art program manager, as an enabler, to assist artists or it's to work with young emerging artists mm-hmm. or creatives at RMIT primarily, either in the teaching academic capacity or um, my recent and kind of role that I'm currently paused because I'm doing study, I'm on study leave at, to do my PhD at RMIT Creative. So, you know, for me, my practice has to have two parts. Yeah. I have to have a part that's enabling and supporting. Uh-huh. Can't do it otherwise. Mm-hmm. And then there's a part of me that's about a research experimental mm. space where it's self-funded. We're not going for f- – I, I, we have autonomy, uh-huh. mm-hmm. agency. If I want to work in the public realm, I'm just going to go out and do it. Uh-huh. I'm not going to ask for permission and I never did, which was so ironic when City of <laughs> Melbourne employed me because <laughs> yeah. I was like, do you know my practice? Do you know what I do? <laughs> do you know what I do? I do. I, we carry Carrie and I a public assembly. We generally would go out and do something, or a curator would ask us to do something or, or, or develop a project. Mm. So it was very interesting to suddenly be in the tables turned mm-hmm. in this enabling role. Mm-hmm. It's mm. like, well, yeah. this is interesting. Let's see where it goes. Um, would you mind talking a little bit about practicing um, with your partner? I mean, I could take in the tables and ask you both that same <laughs> question, but I, I, I. Um, I think, sorry, just to interrupt Yeah, sorry, on I just that, threw that yeah, out was yeah. Even before Nicole and I started collaborating on any projects, my practice, although I have autonomy over it, 
became a collaboration in that just my living and my experiences were often something that was shared with Nicole or I would have conversations with her about and it becomes collaborative just through that process alone. I believe that there's um, and that the it becomes, yeah, there's parts of my practice that are really shared because I need feedback or I need to have assistance in certain areas that are like technical because they're like things that I really struggle with. So um, just as maybe a really close friend becomes like a, you know, sometimes a bring in personal assistant or photographer or something like a resource to you they yeah yeah, become another resource of um yeah bouncing ideas around and you know listening to you crap on over dinner about like what the new idea is so even before actually coming out with a a output that we've shared I feel like we were already collaborating in those ways Mm. so true Mm. this is and this is our first collaboration like a you know as a thing on paper you know it's like a is it sorry am I forgetting something no I'm just wondering it is it is it's our first creative project (laughs) together so that's really exciting Mm. you heard it here first (laughs) so I feel like in um what you've told us you've already kind of um shared some of the challenges that you've had to overcome in terms of and really coming up with some amazing solutions to create balance to make sure that you sustain yourself and sustain your practice. Um, have there been any other challenges that you've need to overcome to continue a practice or do you think that these, um, these methods that you've employed have helped create um, a sustainable practice for you at the moment? Practice is never sustainable. Come on, your brain, like, you know. We all, it's like the neuroses of our, of, of, you know, our brains, you know. We, it's, but that angst, the struggle, the pain, the, the, the kinds of nodes of constant moments of, was that crap? Have I got anything to say? Like moments of total insecurity. Mm-hmm. Um, we all have it. So mm. I think you'd be lying if you said that there weren't cons. I, love, I mean, mm. yeah, I learned a big lesson getting chronic fatigue mm. and then I fall into the same trap over and over again. Mm-hmm. And then what's been very interesting, I'm doing, of course, a. have signed myself up to the most world's craziest PhD, which is in one year with, and I'm going to dob him in, David Cross, who also is as crazy to think that you can do it and how, that I can pull that off. How does that happen? Yeah, how did you even make that happen? I feel like it's like you're breaking some kind of rules there. Like, you're like one year, I'm going to do it. Deacon. Watch me. Well, Deacon <laughs> and David Cross, that's all I can say. Great combination. And we'll see. I, it, but it's been interesting because I have been thinking about this one year and thinking about the challenges. Mm. So... Uh, certainly I've established and I found a yoga school that does really cost-effective, unlimitless class, like limitless kind Mm -hmm. of classes per week, like 25 bucks. So it's like that's amazing. I can afford Mm -hmm. that. So thinking about what structures you put in place for mental health uh, has been actually priority one. Yeah. So, yeah. But in terms of challenges, a really big challenge for me um, was coming out of being a bureaucrat at City of Melbourne. And when I started... I had my peer group, my identity changed with my peers and I became, it's this interesting role of power and the challenge there was people, I then was a symbol of a role. People saw me as 
you're the city, you're a blocker, mm. you you are, you're actually out to get me, you're not an enabler. So, and I was naive enough to think, yeah, I'm going to go in there, I'm going to make change, I'm going to mm. shift the system. Well, you know, it's a highly politicised environment mm. and there are a lot of stakeholders and a lot of push and pull. Uh, and where I would had hoped I could make space for artists to test ideas to take risks to, you know, so that there was space where artists had agency um, where they weren't answering a brief mm. like an architect or a designer would mm. but actually had opened and ended enough briefs to really pose p- provocative questions mm-hmm. back to the city. Mm-hmm. You know, that was hard to still have my own ad- identity within that and that mm. um, acknowledge that I still had an arts practice or a creative practice because people didn't, you were either one or the other. It's very interesting. People is very difficult if you are both roles. People, it, you 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 are either one or the other. Yeah. And and it's a big issue in the arts mm. because so many people who are enablers, who are arts administrators, therefore they're absolute pin where they've started as being artists and then they've gone into these roles to try and sustain their own practice. Mm. And I think we don't give each other enough acknowledgement about mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that would be my first thing is about. I then had to rebuild my identity once I left City of Melbourne mm. and to say, so that was my first challenge is, you know, if, and this is really for anyone else that's actually working inside systems, how you enable people and then there's mutual respect and how you build that, that's a big challenge, mm. and then how do you rebuild your identity once you're out. So for me I started a uh, Instagram account a year a year before I left City of Melbourne as and that was like me doing a, a visual affirmation once a month or once every fortnight to say, I still have a practice. Mm-hmm. I still have a practice. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, other challenges, it's always the constant push and pull of most jobs are full time and how on earth do you sustain your practice? Mm. Um, and I'm currently, I love the role I have at RMIT Creative, but it is full time. So how do you, for me, you know, it's the unicorn of finding the three-day-a-week really well-paid that doesn't take your brain yeah. completely yeah. and then have something else that's actually a practice. And I think that mm. is a constant – that's a constant challenge. Mm. Absolutely. And security as well with job security. Uh, yeah. And that doesn't, like, fire you every six months and then rehire mm. you every, you know, mm-hmm. four weeks after that. So, yeah. Sessional academia or uh, academia is amazing. Mm-hmm. However, you've got three-month gaps where and, – and it's the ultimate notion of precariat. Oh. I think artists are – you know, we – there is a – we're kind of like the ultimate model of precariats and we've kind of – we do this because we love it but it kills us at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so throughout you've already mentioned people who have been huge influencers, um, resources – um, door openers and expanders within your practices, um, along with yoga and um, other um, practices to assist you in maintaining a practice. Um, have there been any other resources that you have found that have been really um, important and um, helped you kind of stay on track or even go off track? So influences definitely my dad mm. and his practice. I mean, he left a full-time job when I was about three or four and then worked out in his garage for my entire life, you know, developing R&D, 
prototyping communications engineering equipment and I think about it now and I go, my goodness, that's just so courageous that Mm -hmm. he did that and supported a family on self-motivated projects and um, running his own practice and in some ways that is an arts practice unto itself which is just incredible to acknowledge that and his shed is a menagerie of incredible bits of equipment Mm. of which I used to play in when I was a kid. Drills, coil, like things to make coils and, you know, I think now I I was creating my own language. I didn't understand what he was doing so I created my own. So he's been a really um, important influence and then obviously he's an communications engineer, obviously he and I connected through radio so Mm. um, Mm -hmm. that was kind of great to actually end up doing some projects with him in my own practice. Mm-hmm. So he he's definitely an influence. Um, I think there's also the influences of other things, of the conservatism of family and the family not wanting you to fail or for you to be poor or for you to be unhappy. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting balancing not disappointing the family's wishes and it, it, that's why it, I didn't do arts to start with. Yeah. And but I've slowly moved there. It just took a really long time and I've taken my family with me yeah. on that journey. A softer, yeah. ooh, softer entrance into the world of the arts for mm-hmm. the family. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So now mm-hmm. they go they have to go to art mm-hmm. projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and I think there's an acknowledgement now that it's a validity of practice. Obviously yeah. Kerry, my partner as well in terms of influencer. Um, he's my anchor, but also the person who um he has an ever-expanding brain of um, constant state of um, lateral thinking um, and it's incredible to share time just like you were saying mm-hmm. about constant conversations and feedback and um, complex questions, criticisms. Yeah, I mean it's it's been great to share almost 13 years. Wow. Um, with Kerry and also my best friend Kate um, who she and I started out in architecture and we've both also navigated our lives getting out of architecture Mm. and Mm. having another person in your life who's on this same path but also she's the one that she and I will do the let's do our five-year plans, let's write an affirmation, let's work out what's your goals. So Mm -hmm. she and I Mm -hmm. are like our buddies where we both check each other's, not careers but where what, what, what are the critical things we need to achieve? And she's the one that keeps me on the straight and narrow in terms of um, thinking about the bigger picture. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I do that for her. That's so it's this mutual support mm-hmm. system where Carrie's esoteric mind is just incredible. Kate's kind of my person who she's my go-to if mm-hmm. I, like, need to make a strategic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I have incredible female managers that I've had or teachers from Virginia, my first um, boss, and then Paula and Deborah who were in the corporate sector who believed in me, Sand Helsall who was my um, supervisor for my master's and opened up that you could have an expanded practice. Mm. And then at City of Melbourne I had these two, um, Rose um, Arbrun who was my manager at Public Art for a period of time um, and also Natalie King, who was a curator, who worked with um, me on the Biennial Lab uh, and was chief curator for that. Um, you know, my relationships with Rose and Natalie were complex 
and you know, and we were in the trenches together. Mm. And while they were both really challenging, they were. I also learned so much. Um, and Rose, from Rose, I actually started to understand that no babies were going to die when I work in the arts. But generally <laughs> speaking, like get. Put it into perspective. Yeah, yeah. Um, she ma- knew how to manage risk, mm-hmm. and like finally, someone who could take on risk and really and take and talk about risk in a really different way. Mm. Whereas Natalie was so inspiring in terms of, you know, never giving up, um, working through the system, having a clear vision, thinking about supporting yourself and supporting other female leaders. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I learned a lot from those. From I just I've had incredible lineage of. Um, female visionaries and I think that's really rare I feel Mm. I feel really um I feel really special and privileged to be able to say that um Mm. um, in terms of resources there are people that you meet along the way and and I think about a resource like um certainly when you're working somewhere like City of Melbourne and the acknowledgement of working or getting to know or to meet people like Nawi Ani Carolyn Mm -hmm. or um an incredible resource that I think um, has been really influential for me during my time at City of Melbourne was reading Claire Land's book, Decolonising Solidarity. So also acknowledging the place that you are and what's gone before. Mm-hmm. And I feel um, like it's been um, a, you know, a great opportunity while working at City of Melbourne to connect with really important First Nations elders um, and to think about... to consider self-determination to think about working with not for like I think these are questions Mm. that have opened up for me that have come from like so it's one part resource but also these it's really those people yeah so this is a really good question to be asking because um, right now I'm casting this same question to myself about what can I offer back? Yeah. And because it's a one-year PhD, I'm reflecting on the work that I've done at City of Melbourne and before and seeing how that is research and mm. what, what can I provide for other practitioners. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've realised that the knowledge and resources is so much, in, it's all embodied. It's mm. so much about I've learnt from a discursive space. Yeah. It hasn't come from books. It's actually doing it. Yeah. It's mm. being immersed. It's mm. being in situ. Yeah. It's being, you know, um, right there. And that means... You are absolutely going to make mistakes. You are absolutely, mm-hmm. you know, I have made so many mistakes. I continue to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. I made an epic mistake in December, I thought, um, for a project. And, you know, it's what's so interesting is through that embodied knowledge, you go, okay, what did I learn from that? Mm. So sometimes a resource is actually just saying go and do it. Mm-hmm. And that resource, just the methodology is a resource. Yeah. You're saying, mm-hmm. okay, mm-hmm. You need to do this. You might actually be in your total discomfort zone, which, you know, you can be, but you have to try it. Then you have to get up and do it again. Yeah. 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 Um, So what does having a successful practice mean to you? I think you've kind of covered a lot of ground on that. Um, But, uh, you know, with all the different facets of your kind of um, career path, like what what, what does sort of a successful practice sort of look like to you or, you know, what do you consider when your practice is, is sort of, you know, feel successful to you? If I'm thinking about my practice as so the two sides, and I have to say, I have to admit right now, I'm a Gemini. Yes. So my star sign yes. is really important here. It always means I'm going to have two sides, important. but I'm not secretly two sided. Just, just so you know. Yeah. Just, <laughs> so next time you meet me, don't think that I've got it's two okay. Sides. We, we're Aquarian, so air signs. It's, mm-hmm. We understand. Mm-hmm. So, in terms of my private, like my, and in lots of ways, my practice, my is personal, even though it's public. 
you know, it's about a space for me to experiment an idea and test it. And that because I do it through doing and not through theory, that means having space and that's a lot of the time it's just time mm. to have time to go and do something. But it's not just that, it's the motivation. So it's twofold. It's not just time, it's motivation to get out there and try something out and having that space and agency to do it. I'm very happy not to be funded to do that if I have agency. So mm. I'd much prefer to do something where I don't get permission um, and that's how I've always operated is you don't get permission and you go and try something out and then if you think it's good, then you go get permission. So is there any advice that you really um, wish you could have received when you were kind of starting out, you know, your practice? I had no idea when I started that I wouldn't be an architect. <laughs> mm. So nothing is ever fixed. And I think that's what's so incredible. Like, I, I, It's just hilarious that that first question, we took so long to get through mm. my crazy path that's taken to get to where I am and I, it's going to continue. Mm. I'm not there yet. I'll never be there because we're always going somewhere. Um, so for me it's, and I need to tell myself this still now, is, hey, be patient. You're not going to get there. You can't push it. Mm. Sometimes you just have to be patient and wait. Like. I don't tell myself that enough even now, you know, even if it's patients waiting for somebody to get back to me, like just that fundamental, it's not all going to happen instantly. Um, if people want to either experience your practice, look at parts of your practice, can they find you on um, a website or Instagram or um, at the markets? How can they find you? Well, we're at Camberwell Markets every fortnight that's a bit random at the moment in terms of which if it's the first or the second week of the Sunday. But um, generally if you show up at Camberwell, you'll see an ice cream van and that's where we'll be, um, near the rotary van. Okay. Uh, we have a website, publicassembly.com.au. I also have a closed Instagram that's exploring my PhD, um, which is called Public Field Office. So if you're interested in finding out what I'm doing in terms of exploring public realm and how we make our public, then it might be good to check that out. Mm. Um, and with my other Instagram, which is publicassembly, public.assembly, that you'll see all the manifestations of my jewellery making that I was using during the time I was at City of Melbourne and now my, my Instagram account is starting to show my practices back. Mm. So doing projects with Carrie. Thanks so much for coming into the studio today, mm, Linda. Thank we're, you. We're just so grateful you could come and talk to us. It's been an absolute pleasure. I just want to tell everyone I'm really sorry. That was such a long kind of crazy <laughs> path that we just went down in terms of my career. So, yeah, hopefully something useful has come. At, you might have gleaned something that was useful out of that discussion. Oh, totally. I'm sure they will have. I have. So thank you. Yes. Thanks. Thanks. This episode is recorded on the sovereign land of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, the Wurundjeri people, and pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. Thanks for listening to ProPrac. You can listen to other episodes and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can stay up to date with what we're up to on Instagram at ProPracPodcast or send us an email at propracpod at gmail.com. 